Let me introduce this to us this morning. Uh, Psalm 72. Now, Proverbs 29.2 tells us, and I think there's another, another place in Proverbs that says it, but Proverbs 29.2 tells us, When the righteous rise to power, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And I would say that all of us here have felt probably both of those things more than once in our lifetime. I would say all of us have probably experienced righteous rule and we rejoiced in that. And we have probably also experienced wicked rule and we have grown in that and in a multitude of of areas in our lives. Uh, Just thinking generally and maybe the direction your mind went when I said that, um, even in my lifetime, I've done my share of, you know, holding my nose in the voting booth, as they say, and voting for the candidate that stunk the less, the least. Um, but uh, all, of it, all of us know, I think that's born of the idea that, that all of us know that, generally speaking, good and righteous governance brings about peace and flourishing, while poor and wicked governance brings turmoil and burden. Generally speaking, that's the way that that shakes out. And because of this, all of us long to be led by righteous leaders and desire just men to be in places of authority. And this is the truth that that David realizes at the end of his reign. And uh, he prays for his successor, Solomon, that he would be the kind of ruler the people can rejoice in by praying that he would be just and righteous. That's verses 1 through 7. That he would have great dominion, verses 8 through 14. And that he would have a long reign and a lasting legacy, verse 15 through 17, before the psalm closes as uh, each... uh, Psalm at the end of a book closes with a doxology. So this prayer of David for Solomon is a prayer of hopeful anticipation. And the reason it's a prayer of hopeful anticipation is because it's actually based on a promise that God made to David. And that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we know that covenant to be, or we call that uh, promise rather, the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that's why I'm using the language of hope for, uh, for the prayer of this king. So it is a prayer for the king, but it's more than a prayer. It's a hopeful anticipation that is communicated through a prayer. And in fact, I think that we will see as we move through this psalm that we also share David's hopeful anticipation for a just and righteous king with great dominion and a great name. But before I move in uh, to the text this morning, let me do one more thing because some of you may be looking or you may have read ahead to prepare your hearts for the word of God today. And you may hear me say, this is a prayer of David for Solomon. And you're looking at the superscription and saying, now look, Jamie, you've put some emphasis on the superscriptions as you've preached through the second book of the psalm. 
And you're telling me that this is a prayer of David uh, for Solomon, but it says right there in the superscription of Solomon. But I'm not off of my rocker yet, or at least not in this. I have I have a good reason to believe that this is a prayer of David for uh, Solomon. That wor- first of all, that word of that appears in the superscription or the heading of Solomon, it can mean several different things, uh, like from, to, for, about, and so on. A lot of uh, prepositions like that, and so that of Solomon could be for Solomon or about Solomon, and then in verse twenty. Uh, it references what has just been prayed as the prayers of David. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And I know that that could be a reference to the whole book, uh, book two of the psalm. But there are other prayers that appear after book two, prayers of David. And so I think there's good reason to believe that this is a prayer of David for Solomon. I think that that that, uh, heading and taking those things together gives us a a good reason to believe that this is a prayer of David for Solomon. And also in the biblical theological context of this, I think that that we can say that. So let's let's get into this uh, prayer of David for Solomon. And the first prayer that David makes is that this king would be a king of justice and righteousness. A king of justice and righteousness. That's verse 1 through 7 I'll read. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. So this is a hopeful prayer of David for his successor to reign justly and righteously. But I think there's something we notice immediately, and that is for uh, the prayer is for God to give his justice and righteousness to the royal son. So you see that it's not, Lord, uh, bring about righteousness from within, but give your righteousness to the royal son. So the prayer is for the royal son king to reign with God's own justice and righteousness. The prayerful hope is that the king ultimately would be what all kings, what God intended all kings to be, and that is his representatives of righteous judgment. That's what, give the king your justice. Make him a representative of your righteous judgment. And in that way, God's righteousness and justice will flow out to God's people through his representative king, uh, this king of righteousness. So that, so, so that prayer, uh, this, that God's righteousness and justice would flow out to the people has consequences. Verse 3 says that it brings about prosperity or flourishing. David prays that God's righteous rule through the royal son would bring about what 
the word appears in the ESV, prosperity. But the Hebrew word used here is a word that many of us are probably uh, familiar with, and that is the word shalom. You ever heard that word? And, and it doesn't merely mean wealth, but it also means peace, soundness, and general welfare and blessings. So shalom is not just be prosperous, but shalom is a general flourishing, a general welfare and blessing. So he, David is praying for shalom. He is praying that the land would bear blessing and welfare for the people. The land would bear blessing and welfare for the people. And this is actually a covenant promise that comes, that is mediated through the Mosaic covenant to the Israelites if they would not defile the land with sin, injustice, and idolatry. And so the land would be blessed as long as God's king is representing his righteousness and justice. But if the land is filled with sin and idolatry, well then the land would not have shalom. And we can also note the connection between shalom and righteousness that is upheld at the end of verse 3. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. So the mountains, the land, the hills, the land bear prosperity But it is in righteousness. The welfare and blessing of the people would not come through crooked business deals and underhanded financial practices. But it comes through righteousness as it flows from God through the king and to the people. This is not simply prosperity. It is shalom that is connected with God's righteousness. But also there would be defense and deliverance as the king rules righteously and justly he would also provide defense and deliverance in verses four and five the petition for the royal son continues in hopes that his righteous judgment will bring defense and deliverance not just for the people for the people of course but even more pointedly for the poor and needy poor people especially in those days, had no resources. And then therefore there was no advantage to be gained by helping them. And that left them often marginalized and overlooked. But also, often they were taken advantage of because of their desperation and vulnerability. They would go deep into debt or sell themselves into servitude, lifelong servitude, just so they could put food on the table. And often the very wealthy, very rich would take advantage of them. And so the prayer is for defense and deliverance of these poor and needy. Prayerfully and hopefully, the royal son would defend the cause of the vulnerable and he would save them from their neediness and affliction. In fact, the hope is that this king in righteousness and judge justice would not simply defend the poor and the needy, but that he would crush the head of the oppressors in his kingdom. And this brings to mind, I think, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And I, I want to, uh, to read that where the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. As a matter of fact, that word crushes the same word that appears in Genesis chapter 3, 
verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that word, he shall bruise your head is he shall crush your head. And so this brings to mind that head crushing work of the serpent. So crush, not only defend the defenseless, but crush those who would oppress them. And then the prayer is that the king, the royal son's reign would bring refreshment to the people of God. And we see that in verses 6 through 7. Not just righteous and just rule, but a refreshing rule. Like the rain refreshes the earth is the image that the psalmist paints here. And this, this emphasizes again the relationship between the righteous rule of this king and the well-being of the people of God. Verse 7 again references that shalom that is mentioned in uh, verse 3. The righteous and just rule of the king, uh, in the righteous rather and just rule of the king, the righteous will flourish, not the wicked, but the righteous will flourish, and shalom abounds, not just exists. So the prayer is not, Lord, let the, let the righteous flourish, but also the wicked flourish with them, and let shalom be present, but it is that the righteous would flourish and the wicked would be crushed, and that shalom would abound and not simply exist, and not just for a short period of time, but for as long as the moon stands in the sky, for generations to come. Let the reign of your king be a refreshment to your people. The next hopeful anticipatory prayer is for dominion, that this royal son would have dominion. And that's verses 8 through 14. And you'll see right off where I get that. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Does that sound familiar to something we may have just read? May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. So first, the prayer for the royal son continues. And in verses 8 through 11, it moves to a petition that the king would have dominion, but not just dominion, but universal dominion. May all kings fall down before him. May all nations serve him. And I I think it is here in verses 8 through 11, which is what I believe to be this central part of the psalm, that, this, that the messianic implications of Psalm 72 
become unavoidably apparent. The prayer is for dominion of the royal sun to extend from the capital R River. So that's a reference to the Euphrates River, which is the heart of civilization, to the ends of the earth, to the extreme ends of the earth. So let him have universal dominion. As a matter of fact, Psalm 72 is quoted word for word in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 10. Let me read verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Here's the quotation. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah is full of messianic hope and here points to the one capital O, one, who will come from the lineage of David. This is what David is praying for, to rule over all the world. And Zechariah understands that the king, capital K king, he speaks of, is the same king David uh, ultimately was praying for in Psalm 72.8. And the gospel writers understood that as well. Zechariah 9, they understood to be fulfilled at the triumphal entry of Jesus, marking the beginning of the week, leading to Jesus' death. And so when they see Jesus coming down on a donkey uh, and, and coming into Jerusalem, they begin to wave the branches, you know, that's Palm Sunday. And they begin to cry, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord because they understand Zechariah chapter 9 to be fulfilled. This is the messianic king that we had hoped for, the messianic king that David prayed for in Psalm 72 and 8. So the prayer continues that the tribes of the desert and kings of far off lands like Tarshish and Sheba would bring gifts to pay tribute to him. Indeed, the universal reign of the royal son would prayerfully and hopefully extend, the psalmist prays, to all kings, so that all kings would bow down before him, and all nations would serve him. Also look back at verse 9. We see that the prayer is that his enemies would Lick the dust. Again, like he did in verse 4, David is using imagery from Genesis chapter 3. That's why I read verse 14 to you. So the curse is that this enemy would crawl around on his belly and eat dust for the rest of his days. So the prayer brings the hope that the royal son would crush the heads of the oppressors and cause his enemies to eat dust thereby establishing hope that the king, this is important, would bring about a restoration of the Adamic dominion prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden. 
That was the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The cursed serpent would have an end as the heel crushing seed of the woman, or the head crushing seed of the woman would come. His heel would be bruised, but he would crush the heads of his oppressors. And, and, and of course, uh, and, and restore that Adamic dominion prior to the fall. What we understand that to be, or what we call that is, the covenant of works. If Adam, the covenant of works says, if Adam would have obeyed God, then his dominion would have, exp- would have expanded universally to all of the earth. But we know that Adam failed in that. But the, but the prayer is that this royal son would have universal dominion. And also the prayer is that his dominion is based on righteousness and justice. The reason he has universal dominion is because of his righteousness and justice. It's not universal dominion because of tyranny or universal uh, dominion because of military might. Do you see that? It's universal dominion because of the king's righteousness and justice. He takes over the world by being righteous and just. And that's verses 12 through 14. The prayerful hope is that kings and nations will bow before him because of his righteous righteousness and justice. In many ways, it will be a result of or an answer to the prayers of verses 1 through 4. And you can see that and you go back and look. Verses 1 through 4 prays for the very thing that Psalm 72, 12 through 14 mentions here. He, this royal son will take up the cause of the needy and, and afflicted and will redeem them from the violence of their oppressors. His dominion will be established by redeeming the weak and needy. Do you see that? The universal dominion of the king, the royal son, will be established not by, uh, not by working with powerful people, but the universal dominion will be established by redeeming the weak and needy and crushing the head of the oppressor. <laughs> so looking back at the way that verse 4 and verse 9 reference Genesis 3, 14 through 15. If David is ultimately praying for the head-crushing seed of the woman that will reestablish universal dominion, that means he is ultimately praying against the serpent. The ultimate royal son, the ultimate capital R, capital S, royal son, the ultimate answer to the prayer of Psalm 72 will establish dominion over all the earth. And how does he do it? How does Jesus establish dominion over all the earth? He does it by redeeming those who are oppressed and by crushing the head of the serpent. Jesus rules the world not through tyranny, not through powerful people, but through his righteousness and justice. It's by redeeming those who are needy and oppressed and crushing the head of the oppressor. 
And can I tell you that Christ redeemed the needy and oppressed? And do you know where he did that? And crushed the head of the oppressor. Where did that happen? That happened at the cross. God accomplished this through crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Which means... This is what this means, that all who are weak and needy because of the oppressive serpent only need to repent of their sins and their rebellion against this king and to call on his name and to bow before the king. Just like Psalm 2 says, they need to kiss the ring of the royal son and be subject to him and then they will find blessing. Christ has redeemed the needy. He has redeemed the oppressed, beloved, and he has crushed the head of the oppressor. This royal son has purchased us with his blood. Is he worthy? He is. The next thing is that the next prayer is that he would have a long reign and a lasting legacy. That this royal son would have a long reign and a lasting legacy. And this is verses 15 through 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. And all nations call him blessed. So may his reign be long. And may the people love him. And may he have a lasting legacy. A long prosperous reign is the prayer. And a lasting legacy. And undoubtedly as I began this. It is a hope based on God's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 9 through 16. I alluded to it a moment ago. Let me Let me read that promise to you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 9 through 16. This promise we know as the Davidic covenant. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Of course, he is not Christ is not disciplined. Uh, This Davidic king is not disciplined who is Christ. Because of his own sin. But he does bear stripes for sin. It's our sin. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is the promise that David is basing his prayer upon, that God would establish the throne of David forever through his royal son. So the words come, long live the king. That's our English equivalent for uh, what, is, what is said, may, uh, long may he live. The prayer is connected again to the righteous nature of the king revealed in verses 12 through 14. And answered or prayed for also in verses 1 through 7. His long and prosperous reign flows from his commitment to ruling righteously and justly. Do you see that? And this would bring about a secure and peaceful reign where foreign nations fear him and bring him tribute and all his subjects love him and invoke prayers and blessings for him constantly. And then the next part of the prayer in verse 16 even seems to be an expansion Of the prayer in verse 7. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. And so uh, this is an expansion of verse 7. In his days may the righteous flourish. And peace abound till the moon be, be no more. So that is the righteous and just reign of the king. That brings about flourishing. David hopes that his royal son. Will not, will not only have a long reign, but a prosperous reign because of his righteous rule. In David's mind, what I'm trying to get at is that in David's mind, there is always a connection between righteousness and security and prosperity in the land. Do you see that? David always says there will be peace and prosperity in the land because the king does righteously. And the reason that that is in David's mind is because it is a part of the blessing and cursing promised in the Mosaic covenant. And I want to read that to you, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3 and 4, and then verse 15 and 16. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Conversely, listen to verses 15 and 16. If you spurn my statutes, and if if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this thing to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting, disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heartache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. So what David is praying for is that the righteousness and justice of this king would bring about prosperity in the land. He is praying that ultimately that his royal son would fulfill the Mosaic covenant to bring prosperity in the land. And then... He finally prays in verse 17, may his name endure forever. Long may he live 
And may his legacy endure, keyword, forever. In verse 17, the focus of the hopeful prayer is turned back to the royal son. But this time, the emphasis is not so much on his life, but on his legacy, his name, his fame. It, that, it would, that it would be great. That the prayer is first that his name would be great. Indeed, that it would endure forever. And as I've already said and pointed out, this is based on the promise made in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 9. But that promise at least to some degree, is based on the promise that came before that. And that is the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I'm aiming at something here. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Isn't that what David prayed for? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isn't that what David prayed for? So while reading Genesis 12, 2 through 3. In light of Psalm 72 in 2 Samuel 7. You may notice the connection that all nations would be blessed in the royal son. And would call him blessed. David is ultimately praying and hoping that the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled in the royal son as his name is made great and all the nations are blessed in the royal son. And then we come to the doxology. The doxology that closes book two. We have been working our way through book 2 of Psalms. Psalm 72 is the final psalm in the second book. And like all the other books of the Psalms, Psalm, the book, book 2 closes in Psalm 72 with this doxology in verse 18 and 19. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever." May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. So Psalm 72, as I've said, is the end of the second book. And each of the books end with a doxology. But these doxologies are not just tacked on at the end of the psalm just for the sake of having a doxology to end the book. That's, that's not the way that that works. The doxologies are connected to the Psalms that they are providing the end for. So it is not by accident that this doxology, closing book 2, is connected to Psalm 72. It's connected to that Psalm that they provide the ending for, that it provides the ending for. So blessed be God, because God does wondrous things. David prays this prayer with great hope, and anticipation because he knows the God of Israel does wondrous things. So he is basing it, he is basing this prayer on the promises that are made to the people of God all throughout the Old Covenant, right? He is basing this prayer on that, but even more than that, he knows that God is able to fulfill these promises because God does wondrous things. 
Now we know the royal son David that, that David immediately prays for, who is Solomon, he, he falls short of the full answer to this prayer, doesn't he? We see him do good for a while and we can look and see, well, I can see where Solomon did that. I can see where Solomon had great dominion. We can see where the kingdom flourished under Solomon's rule. We can see where nations brought tribute to him and things of that nature. But we also see the word says of Solomon, like it says of many of the exceedingly wicked kings, that he did not do that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Solomon ultimately fell short of the full answer to this prayer. And no other king after Solomon in in the divided kingdom ever achieves or fully answers this prayer. But God does a wondrous thing, doesn't he? And he raises up the ultimate capital R, capital S, royal son, Jesus. He is the seed of David. He is the seed of Abraham. He reigns in righteousness. He takes dominion over all the earth, brings salvation to the weak and needy, and is, giving a, and is given a great name and is a blessing to all the nations. So in Psalm 72, what we see is a hopeful prayer of the, that the royal son would fulfill the covenant of works, universal dominion, the Mosaic covenant, prosperity in the land because of righteousness, the Davidic covenant, David's namesake sitting on the throne forever, and the Abrahamic covenant, a great name and blessing to the nations. All the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. They are fulfilled in him. Do you see that? Every promise that God made to a figurehead in the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Psalm 72 contains every single one of these covenants. What the prayer is, is Lord, send your royal son to fulfill all of your promises and may he have dominion and long and lasting reign. Praise God this prayer is answered. By God doing a wondrous thing in Christ. He does a wondrous thing through Christ who is the ultimate royal son. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. The wondrous thing that God does through his royal son ultimately fills the earth with God's glory. We have to admit that we do not yet see the whole earth filled with God's glory doing. As a matter of fact, it seems like just the opposite is true. The whole earth is filled with chaos and calamity. The whole earth is filled with wars and rumors of wars. The whole earth is filled with death and decay. We don't see it yet. But, as Hebrews chapter 2 says... We see Jesus. We see the glorious royal son, Jesus. And he fulfilled all the hopeful prayers that David prays. And so we know because he has fulfilled all of those prayers. Remember, I preached, I think it was Psalm 68. God will because God has. We know that God will do something because God has accomplished it. 
It has been accomplished in Christ. He ha- and He has shown us that He has fulfilled every single covenant. And that means that all we are waiting for is for His glory to fill the earth. That's the only thing that we have left. It's the only thing. And we know that God will do that because He has kept His promises all the way up to that point. Up to this point in Jesus. We know that he will finally fulfill this hope. As a matter of fact, it is not just, well, we hope that that will be because he has kept his promises. We have a whole book that is dedicated to the progression of history that culminates in Revelation 21, 22, with the whole earth being filled with his glory. So not only do we have the promises fulfilled, but we have the promise that the rest of the promise will be fulfilled. (laughs) Do you get now while I get excited about all of this? God's name will be glorious forever. His glory will fill the earth through the reign of His royal Son. This is the King that we pray for. And this is the King that we hope for based on the promises of God. And I get why David ends by saying, Amen and Amen. So I began a moment ago by saying we don't see shalom, do we? We don't, we don't see prosperity and righteous rule. We see death and decay, chaos and calamity. So what do we do here? What do we do now as we anticipate the time when the glory of the Lord will fill the earth? There's something Michael Reeves said a few years ago. And if you don't know who Michael Reeves is, I greatly encourage you to find out. He said a few years ago that the greatest need for Christians today is to turn our hearts from all that is distracting us and to place our gaze upon Christ. And this simple statement, just this simple statement who was actually which is actually a quotation of Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, has had a deep impact on my life. And the more I live in experience, the more relevant this statement becomes in my life. There's, there is so much taking place all around us that causes our hearts to become anxious, discouraged, and even brought to despair. And it is my simple hope Today, that those simple words would have the impact on you that it has on me. And that you would simply learn in the chaos and the distraction of this life to turn your eyes to Jesus, your King. Set your gaze on Him. I I don't have seven steps to uh, have dominion over the world for you today. I don't have three ways for you to have long and prosperous leadership. I have something eminently better. And that is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Christ. He is what I can offer you today. Is he enough? He is enough. Some of us are feeling the crunch of a crumbling economic situation. Anybody feeling that? 
We don't see, we don't see much hope of it getting better anytime soon. As a, as a matter of fact, there have been just in, in, this, uh, in, in just this week, this celebratory week of Thanksgiving, uh, three folks that, that touch our lives that we know of have suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. Uh, Brian was sharing with me the grief that the Spradley family is feeling today. Uh, we are, we are, are, are sensing the grief that uh, the Frankses are feeling today. Uh, one of my heroes of the faith, Conrad Mbewe, his son died unexpectedly at 32 years old. He was deeply involved in Conrad's mission work in Africa. Uh, and it just seems like there's so much and we so much injustice. We have abortion and mutilation of children and, and that's an injustice. But ironically, in our day and age, it's an injustice to speak negatively about those things. So we're, there are injustices all around us. But now what is uh, good is being called evil and evil is being called good. There's an inversion of justice. What's going on? What, how do we clear out the chaos and the calamity? How do we get through these difficult times? I want to remind you, dear ones, that the king we hope for has, not will, but has established his kingdom. He, do you know what he said on the cross? He didn't say it will be finished in a thousands of years or so. What did he say? He said it is finished. The work was accomplished at Calvary. Christ crushed the head of the oppressor. He redeemed all of the weak and needy that would place their faith and trust in Him. Beloved, we're not waiting for it to happen. It's as good as happened. It is finished. He has given deliverance. He has crushed the head of the oppressor. His dominion is from the river to the ends of the earth. Indeed, the ends of the heavens. His throne is forever. And all the nations are blessed in Him. In the utter chaos, confusion, and clamor we see all around us. Set your gaze upon the royal Son. For He will return and consummate the kingdom. And the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Now that's a hope worth living for. Praise be to the royal son. May prayers be made to him. May tribute be brought to him. May his dominion be forever and ever. And may the hope and the anticipation of that prayer lift our hearts, God, to serve you with more vigor, Lord, with more relentlessness, with more passion, with more fervor than we have ever done before. Because hope rising in in the hearts of your subjects drives us to announce the reign of this King. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.